is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories too. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll put them together and we'll send them right back out to you over the airwaves. Your stories are as good as any we put together. This next story is a really good one. We love telling you stories about people you should know, but don't, and particularly about innovators in their field, because there's always a lot of pain in innovation. There's disruption, and in disruption and change, there is often difficulty. And this next person, while I happen to know him well, he's my doctor. Let's throw it to Joey for a remarkable life story. When you think of leaders in innovation, who comes to mind? Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, all true giants in American history. Some of those stories that we've told on the show. But how about Cooper? Dr. Ken Cooper. You probably haven't heard his name, but you should have. He's the physician to presidents and CEOs and has helped put astronauts in space. And if that's not enough, his life's work has most likely impacted your life personally. Do you exercise? Has anyone, a loved one, or a doctor ever told you that you should exercise? Well, like it or not, the father of that movement, that way of life, is Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics. The practice of vigorous exercise to strengthen the heart, lungs, and general health. Aerobics, a term that before Dr. Cooper wasn't even in the dictionary. Today, it is largely accepted in medicine but not so much in the 1960s. Here's Dr. Ken Cooper on the medical community's response to his book titled Aerobics. And let's just say that the doctors and scientists at the time, especially the older ones, were not too receptive of this revolutionary thing called aerobics. When the book first came out in 1968, I actually saw titles in medical newspaper articles that the street's gonna be full of dead joggers more Americans follow Cooper. Every time someone had died while jogging, I heard about it. And I thought for a while I was responsible for that. But then you start putting the figures together. And you see that when people start reading the book, 1968, had 100,000 joggers. By 1984, we had 34 million joggers. And by 1990, we had 35 million joggers. And from 1906 to 1990, heart disease dropped 48%. All of this began while Dr. Ken Cooper was working in the Air Force. Cooper was recruited to create the fitness program for NASA astronauts, where he would refine his big idea, aerobics, the groundwork for preventive medicine, a practice that, quote, focuses on the health of individuals, communities, and defined populations to protect, promote, and maintain health and well-being, and to prevent disease, disability, and even death, a medical practice that America, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is in dire need of. It's been deplorable that the obesity in our children has gone from 13% in 1990 to 33% overweight or obese at the present time. Our adults have gone from 33% in 1990 to 80% in this, in this country. We haven't done much about it. 76% of the diseases we have are the result of our lifestyle. 45% of cancers are preventable. And we spend twice as much money as anybody else in the world on health care, and we rank 43rd in longevity. Too much care, too late. And so we've got to make those changes. Changes that Dr. Ken Cooper would experience in his youth. 
As a kid, one of Ken's dreams was to become an Olympic runner, and he was pretty darn close, running a 4 minute and 30 second mile in high school. And back then, that was a big deal. But such is the case with many of us, Ken's fitness would take a sharp decline as he would start the next chapter of his life. I got to college for four years and soon discovered that obesity is the most common manifestation of stress. So I jumped from 168 by the time I finished medical school, internship, and I got married. For an eight-year period, I did nothing to eat. I gained up to 204 pounds. I was dying of mental apathy. I was, had to go in the military for two years to pay back the being deferred from the draft. During that was in the Vietnam conflict. But then something happened that changed my life. I've been an excellent water skier during my youth. At 29 years of age, I went water skiing for the first time in eight years, trying to ski a slalom course here at Lake Texoma, southern Oklahoma. About halfway through the slalom course, way overweight, deconditioned, I had a cardiac arrhythmia that hit me. And I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart just jumping out of my chest, beating very, very rapidly. I was lightheaded, and I thought I was going to pass out out there on the water. They got me over to the site, got me on to the emergency room. By the time I got to the emergency room, it was all back to normal. I had a very extensive workup back at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio with my heart, and they couldn't find anything wrong. Only thing wrong with me, I was out of shape. And so that shot me back into reality. So I lost the weight within six months. I ran my first marathon a year and a half later. And as you know, I ran for 40 years before I broke my leg snow skiing back in 2004. But what happened to me, Prior to the time I lost that weight, I was hypertensive, I was borderline diabetic, I had no energy. I told my wife I felt like I was dying from mental apathy. That all changed. And I felt much better, physically fitter, less depressed, less of a hypochondriac, improved self-image, much more positive attitude towards life. That happened to me. And I thought, this is a field of medicine that's been sadly ignored, what we can do for ourselves. I'm planning on being an ophthalmologist. An orthopedic surgeon. I finished my two years in the military. But this dramatic thing happened to me. I think that was divine because the Lord had a plan for me. And so that changed my life and changed my direction. I transferred from the Army to the Air Force to go into the space program. I thought I'd be a NASA astronaut. Lost the weight, running regularly. Ran the Boston Marathon twice. Became a quote-unquote expert in the Air Force because Master's of Public Health the first year at Harvard School of Public Health. Worked on Doctor of Science next year. Left, went back to the military, and I was the Air Force expert. Worked in designing exercise program for the astronauts. Developed the aerobics program while I was in the Air Force. So that episode with my obesity problem, I was able to change my life, and that probably saved my life. Because the uh, majority of my medical school colleagues graduated in 1956 were the same thing. And back in those days, half of them smoked. And now there's only 20 of us left because I'm afraid that most of those uh, colleagues of mine didn't have that wake-up call that I had at 29 years of age, and they died young in life. And so I think that was a wake-up for me that it saved my life and changed my profession. And more on the life story of the father of aerobics and one of the leaders in preventive medicine in this country, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper continues after these commercial messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper. And by the way, he had said earlier, the Lord had a plan for me, and my goodness, he did. And Dr. Cooper's a believer and a man of science, and that happens every day here in this great country. Let's pick up where we last left off. We left off with Ken's accident shocking him back to health. An accident that with the additional inspiration from a book he read would thrust him into a vocation that would help people from around the world live healthier and longer lives. I read a book entitled Halftime. And in this book, Bob Buford said you can be successful, not significant. That was me. You can be successful, but not significant. I was successful in the eyes of the military. But you can't become a general officer unless you have some administrative experience. You've got to leave what you've been doing all those years. I said, I'll gladly finish my 20 years. Let me stay here. I'll get a rank of a colonel. I'll be perfectly satisfied. Let me stay here and continue what I've been doing. I'm having an impact on the military. It wasn't until after I left that the Air Force said the most significant contribution that Air Force Medical Services made to medicine was the aerobics program. A program whose potential was not fully realized at the time. And because of the military's administrative glass ceiling, preventing him from rising through the ranks and making a greater impact, Dr. Ken Cooper decided to take a big risk. I'm getting out. I had no insurance, had no separation pay, had a wife that's pregnant with my son Tyler, had a five-year-old daughter, moved from, with our dog Christy, the Cocker Spaniel, we moved like the Grapes of Wrath, from uh, San Antonio to Dallas. It hadn't been for Joe McKinney and the Totter Corporation called Saturn Industry back in those days, I'd be here today. Because after still in the military, back in 1968, he read the book, Aerobics, excited about the book so much that he asked me to speak to his corporate executives at Lakeway down near Austin, Texas Lake Travis. And so I spoke to his top executives there, and he was so enthralled with the concept of what I was talking about, the aerobics program and all, and the book, that he said, if you ever decide to leave the military and you want to come to Dallas and start something of your own, let me know. I put that in the back of my mind. But two years later, I came to Dallas and I thought that I had two successful books, but you don't have any, I had a financial statement worth about $25,000. That was all, you don't have much money, particularly myself, softback books back in those early days. And so I thought I could raise enough money to build this center, starting with only 8.6 acres. But I went to savings and loans and they uh, wanted to know what I was going to use for collateral. I thought that was something around the blood pressure obstructed. Sorry, son, we can't help you. And I just finally bummed out. And I went to Joe McKinney and said, Joe, here I am. I, I can't do it by myself. Can you help me? We'll try. And so I needed $1.6 million to buy this property here, the first 8.6 acres of 30 acres we have now. And so he said, okay, put it before his board. We won by one vote. that they loaned me the money, no interest, for six months I paid no interest, and so I was able to buy the property, and then it took me 11 months downtown before I could move out here, early 1971. But I had to borrow $2,000 a month, pay mother to employees. I lived on savings, so it was tough. And they got to Dallas, and uh, went from, from the, fire to, from the fry, frying pan to the fire, because this was very controversial back in those days in 1970, 1971. 
After years of refining and practicing aerobics, and collecting an incredibly large amount of data, Ken's mission, his vocation, would become mainstream. But it certainly wasn't easy to get there. And to fully understand how Dr. Ken Cooper would successfully weather this pushback, we have to understand his relationship with his father, a man who wasn't foreign to such criticism. His father, a Depression-era dentist, was similarly rejected by the science community for subscribing to what was at the time also revolutionary, the nutritional supplementation of vitamins. So my dad was a strong proponent of vitamins, the alphabet tablets. And back in those days, even when I was in medical school, I was taught that vitamin supplementation was worthless. It makes the pharmacist rich and the toilet water very expensive. And you're wasting your time on vitamins. And to some extent, that was true back in those days because we had good food, good diets by and large. We had not a lot of processing foods like we have at the present times. And, and the foods weren't deficient in vitamins like they are at the present time. And that's what's become necessary for us to supplement our diets with vitamins because the processing food, the growing of food, the deterioration of the soil, all these various things. So my father was ahead of his time there. And so he wrote strongly recommend, and I grew up with the supplemental vitamin therapy. I thought he was nuts back in those days because I was being taught to the contrary in medical school. And here, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is how the medical community responded to his father. They all thought he was a quack because his emphasis on vitamins, but they also accused my father of practicing medicine because many times people would come to him with their pyrrhea problems, their dental problems, but change their diet, changing their diets, and they found that their, that their arthritis improved and their diabetes improved. And so he actually saw other benefits by trying to improve the situation of mouth that had a total body effect that actually accused him of trying to practice medicine without a license. So that was how much innovator my father was. He felt threatened, but he's still the same as I've done. He stuck to what he believed until the time of his death. So my father, without question, was a tremendous impact on my life. But I think what he, more than anything else, what he taught me was discipline was my weight, my diet, my exercise, my studying, my good grades in school, and all these various things I attribute to my father. Ingenuity, determination, and discipline, all qualities passed on by his father to help Ken weather the trials to come. Here's Ken on how the medical community responded to aerobics. Exercise was dangerous. It shouldn't be done. Past 40 years of age, they'd have a heart attack. That was still prominent thinking up until 1989. After collecting data on the effects of exercise and stress testing on health, Ken started to make waves, releasing their projected findings that aerobics would not only drastically improve your health, but add six years onto your life. We published that front page, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, American Heart Association said for the first time in all these years, that your aerobic capacity is a major point of risk factor. In 2009, we had uh, 96,000 people, men and women, who had fought it for 20 years. And we predicted, we couldn't prove this yet, but we predicted our men would live 87.5 years, women 90.5 years. That's over 10 years longer than the national average. That was predicted and controversial in 2009. But within the past couple of months, Harvard School of Public Health 
published a nursing study on their physicians and nurses study. 34-year follow-up, 126,000 people in the study. They looked at these risk factors. Proper weight, proper diet, exercising at least 30 minutes, no use of tobacco in any form, and then only minimal alcohol consumption, five things. And what they showed, those people had, didn't have any good risk factors. The women's average life expectancy was 79.5 years, and men 75.5 years. But they had none of those risk factors. The average life expectancy for men was 87.5 years, women 93.5 years, almost exactly what I said 10 years earlier. Based on prediction, it's now come full force. That has happened so many things now that I predicted had criticism of all magnitude that have come full circle. And you're listening to Dr. Ken Cooper. He just happens to be my doctor. But my goodness, the things he's teaching Americans about weight, about diet, about exercise, and people around the world, how to control our health care costs, well, do these things, and how to extend your life and live better and longer. Do those things. Eat right, exercise. Again, at the time... People thought he was crazy. We learned this from innovators in almost every walk of life that we've covered thus far. And 30 years later, look at the data and look at the research. Men living 87.5 years, women 90 plus. More on Dr. Ken Cooper's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, And if you do, you'll get our five best stories each week in print and audio form. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Ken Cooper's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics and preventive medicine, and one of the leaders of preventive medicine and healthcare around the world, not just the United States. And we left off with Ken receiving great criticism from the scientific community, claiming that exercise and stress testing would not help, but actually harm patients. Ken's findings would prove otherwise, and unfortunately, so would some patients. Back to Ken with the story. A 57-year-old pastor here in town, and he heard me speak at a luncheon, trying to generate patients I'd speak at the Rotary Clubs and things like that. Never got paid for anything. But then he heard me speak and heard me say that if you're over 40 years of age, you should have a stress test before you start a vigorous exercise program. 
because most common first sentiments of your heart disease is sudden death. Give no about it to us too late. He heard me say that. And so he came in my little office, way overweight, 57 years of age. I put him on the treadmill. I stopped it in two minutes. I said, sir, there's a prominent pastor, a very large church here in Dallas. And I said, sir, you have severe coronary disease. You need to be hospitalized immediately. What do you mean? Your EKG is grossly abnormal. Oh, I saw my physician the other day, did a resting EKG. Said, you don't have any heart disease. That Cooper's a nut. I'll run him out of town. I said, okay, sir. If you're unhospitalized for the next 24 hours, I'm washing my hands of your case. Called his physician. I've been practicing medicine now for 62 years. And the only one time I've been cursed up another physician. And that was that physician. What are you doing, you so-and-so? You ought to get back in the Air Force. You're a nut. I'll run you out of town. You're a quack. Oh, okay, sir. I'll accept that. But the fact this man has serious disease needs to be attended to immediately. I don't believe that. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay? I'm washing my hands of his, of his case. And 10 days later, sitting at his desk, he collapsed and died. And the first person to call me was that physician. I didn't know. I didn't know. He's afraid of malpractice because I'm sure he told the family, forget about Cooper, he's a nut. And he was afraid that somebody going to file suit because he told the patient, don't worry about him. We lost a very prominent and successful and intelligent pastor who could, could be alive today. But fortunately, years later, after many trials and tribulations, the medical community has not only taken their target off of Dr. Ken Cooper's back, but has embraced aerobics and preventive medicine. The Lord's given me a long life to see it happen during my lifetime. So now it's, it's worldwide. And as you can tell, Ken is not only a science guy, but also a God guy. The media tries to tell us that they can't coexist, but Dr. Ken Cooper has reason to believe otherwise. I went to, uh, with my son to climb Kilimanjaro in Africa, 1989. There were six fathers and sons in the group. I knew ahead of time I couldn't uh, spend the whole time because I didn't want to go above 14,000 feet because I had too much time in the Air Force at the high altitude. And I didn't want to have more damage to my brain. So I just planned on going to the 14,000 feet. But going across the border there, going from Kenya, where we trained for about 10 days to climb that 19,000 foot mountain, and going across the border from Kenya into Tanzania, they wouldn't let me across because I had a stamp in my passport from South Africa because the apartheid and all that. No, no, you can't come into Tanzania. That's not possible. Well, I asked the guide, what's it going to cost me? About $35. So I bribed my way to get in to Tanzania. But then after I left the group, I did go to 14,000, but up and back one day. But then the next morning, I was being driven back to the border with a gentleman who didn't speak any English. And so I was getting close to the border. I started really worrying. I'm illegal. I don't have a stamp in my passport to get me through here. And if I find out that I have that stamp from South Africa, they may put me in jail. I mean, I was terrified, literally. And I didn't know what to do. I was by myself there and no one, didn't know anybody. Most of them couldn't speak English. And I was actually standing in line with two people in front of me when all of a sudden this beautiful woman dressed in white came up beside me. Dr. Cooper, I've been waiting for you. Give me your passport. And so I gave her my passport, walked up. She opened the passport in a very profound voice. She said, stamp it so he couldn't see anything. And then he closed it back up, gave it back to me, the one there. 
I was the only person who saw that, that woman. You think that was happenstance? To my dying days, I believe that was an angel. And that dying day doesn't seem to be any day soon. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, is still working harder than ever. My wife has made the comment, don't you wish you had as much a passion about anything as my husband does about what he's doing? And that's true. It's what keeps me. I don't have to work anymore. I'm well off. I can retire. I'd be bored sick. Gone for almost three weeks. Beautiful cruise. I could hardly wait to get back. And see, patience. I mean, yesterday I had Charlie Duke here. Only one of four living astronauts who's walked on the moon. He was here yesterday. Been my patient since 19, 1998. So that type of thing. I love my patients. Had a new patient today. I spent an hour and a half with him or longer. And he just couldn't believe I'm spending so much time with this patient. Because what has made successful and why patients stand in line to come. He was an overbook that I took today. What didn't plan on taking a patient today. But I enjoy it. And he's a top CEO. He's not a CEO. He's, but his CEO has all the people coming here. He's the top vice president of his organization. And I had a delightful time with him. That motivates me. I enjoy my work. How many people you know at 87 years of age who still enjoy their work? You know, I like what uh, the promotional speaker of uh, uh, Zig Ziglar once said. You don't retire, you refire. I'm still refiring. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, still refiring indeed. At 87 years old, exercising, maintaining a healthy diet, and living longer, healthier, and happier. All because he follows his own advice. Dr. Ken Cooper, from helping put astronauts in space to helping society become healthier. For Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez. And great job on that, Joey. And thanks also to the Stetson family office in New York. And they work well diligently on this issue of preventive medicine and the Healthcare Impact Foundation, which they manage. Well, they're trying to solve this problem for cities and countries around the world because, my goodness, we're chewing up so much of our money as a society on care that comes too little and too late, as Dr. Cooper acknowledged and is working his life uh, to help fix. And also, I'm a patient with Dr. Cooper, and I can only tell you in four months I'm going back. And uh, he does put you through the paces, and you go on this treadmill, and he, he, he's, he's like a coach. You're a little afraid of him, and he spends two hours with you. Two hours you're going to have a doctor with you. And at 87, he's on fire, and he is working a full day. And when you go in and you spend some time with him, after that two hours, boom, the next person's coming in, and then the next, and then the next. And he was telling me that his little routine includes a movie with his bride on Saturday nights, a little break on Saturday afternoons. He comes into work on Saturday, too, just to review all of the, the patient's files to make sure everything's working right. Uh, this is a guy who loves his work, and Americans love work, and we love talking about Americans at work. Work is so important in our lives, and my goodness, it gives meaning to our lives. I might also do a call out to Bob Buford's book, Halftime, because it changed so many people's lives in this country. If you haven't read it, you should pick it up. And that whole point about having a successful life but not a significant one, well, it really hit a lot of men in their 50s. And they just changed. They started changing things. And I mean really changing things. Dr. Ken Cooper's story 
here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all the things that we do. And again, sign up for our free newsletter. Please get friends to do it too. We'll send you our five best stories each week in audio form and in written form if you prefer to read our stories. But my goodness, it's so much more fun hearing the voices of these people. The legend, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, here on Our American Stories. Our American stories, and as you know, we tell stories of every kind here on the show, including yours. And sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're joyful, sometimes they're sad, and sometimes they're just plain difficult. And homelessness is a subject that, well, most of us want to avoid. Uh, We worry about it ourselves. I think a lot of Americans are a couple of checks away from being homeless, and you just don't want to think about it. It's sort of like Alzheimer's. I read a poll recently where people did not want to be tested for Alzheimer's even though they knew there was a chance it could happen to them. They just didn't want to know. And by the way, we've brought you Alzheimer's stories too. Glenn Campbell's is just so remarkable. And it's a serious social crisis around the country that's ignored, and particularly in some of our bigger cities. But one person is doing something about it. He has a ministry of sorts, if he doesn't mind me calling it that. His name is Mark Horvath, and he experienced himself the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, which chronicles the story of homeless people around this country. Mark hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories, the homeless stories, to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is speaking with Michael and Danielle, who, along with their family of six children, live in a weekly-rate hotel room near St. Louis, a living situation just one step away from street homelessness. Michael works a full-time job, but hotel homelessness becomes a trap. Hotels cost more than an apartment, but you can move right in without a deposit and a hotel room is far better than the streets. Once in, people who are considered the working poor have an impossible time trying to save up enough money to afford adequate housing. Often these hotels are not in a good place for kids to grow up. Here's Mark. Michael and Danielle and family, we're here in Wentzville, and you guys are all living in a hotel room. Actually, there's a couple more of you even. So who else do we have here? Hi. This is is Chimera. This is Sierra. This is Sierra, and this is Kai. Gotcha. And there's one hiding below in the back there. So. (laughs) So 
um, you're about to, uh, we come in, you're packing up because mm -hmm. you are out of money for the hotel. Yes, sir. With no place else to go. Yes, sir. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, what's it like uh, living in a hotel? It's hard. It's stressful. Yeah, it's stressful and hard, but it's better than being on the street. Yeah. How did you end up in this situation? <clears throat> our, our landlord... Our landlord didn't pay the mortgage company, and they took the home. The sheriff we showed up and took the home that we were paying on. Really? Yes, sir. Oh my gosh! And then, how long have you been doing this hotel cycle? Uh, almost a year now. A little over a year. Yeah, we went oh to our, we went to her mom's. Her mom had bed so we went yeah, there for a little bit, and then um, she couldn't afford to pay pay her bills and I was giving what I could right. and it wasn't enough to support two families at one time. Right. You're working. Yes, sir. It's just not enough to get out of here. Pretty, you know? pretty, pretty much so. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. And now the kids are in school? Yes, yes sir. And the oldest three are in school. That's got to be hard. Oh yeah. Got to be hard on them and you. It's yeah. harder on them I think, than it is on us. Yeah. Come on. So, oh my gosh. Uh, and, and this young one, when I walked in, said he was five. Yes. He's yep. happy, just turned five. Oh, yeah. Just turned five on Tuesday. So, like, even here, I mean, you have six kids. Yes. When laundry comes around, there's no laundry facility in this place. And there's a partial laundry facility. It's just not set up to do a full load on okay. the money you pay the first go around if that makes sense so how about uh meals what you see is yeah a lot of mark but what you see on the table is what we have got a, our meals right there uh, what is that like a skillet thing i can mm -hmm. cook yeah. in yeah well you guys are smiling looks like you're making the best of it not much can do right mm -hmm. oh my gosh it's not easy to smile mm -mm. It's okay. Not easy to smile. But you stop. <laughs> but for especially the younger ones, it's you don't have a choice because they don't understand and it's not their fault. Right. Thank you for the milk. <laughs> She's sharing, Daddy. Well, it's not your fault either. <sighs> yeah, you still feel like you failed oh, yeah. somewhere. Right. Don't dump it. Yeah, you. Uh, it's kind of hard when you do everything right, you know, and you're doing an American Dream and you're, you're paying on something, you're working every day, and the kids got nice clothes and they're going to school and their friends stay the night. And then you get somebody that, that takes advantage of you and, and takes your money and then lets you continue to think that you have a home. And next thing you know, you got St. Charles County with four officers knocking on it saying you got to get off your trespassing. Wow. They gave us two hours to empty that home. So I have for our, this really what you see except for one small storage shed is all we have left of home yeah everything else um we couldn't move it in two hours it was it i i was once evicted and given a half an hour so i know it happens i can't oh, yeah. imagine having kids in a whole family and having to move it was just me man my heart goes out to you what would you want people to know about homelessness living in a hotel because this is this is a face of homelessness that they don't see um put a smile on for your kids and 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 make the best that you can 
you know, and, and, and pretty much like like us, if you're going to cry, try to, except for her right now, but if you're going to try to try to go yeah. into the bathroom and cry so the kids don't see it because, you know, dads ain't supposed to cry and, yeah. and that's mom's job, I guess, to cry. Yeah, it's you, okay right? to cry. <laughs> but you don't know what anyone's going through or how they got where they're at. Oh, yeah. yeah. People look so at you don't and... don't make the assumption that yeah, you know. Don't assume that, that, that because you don't have a home, you know, it what the economy is nowadays a lot of people are losing their homes and, and they're making thirty dollars an hour but they can't they can't make the ends meet with children and, and so, so they end up in this hotels which as we started it's still better than the streets yeah that's that's the that's the main thing that's why you know it, it, you don't want to be here but but you you got a roof over your head and and, and keeps everyone together yeah my daddy always told me before he died home's what you make it yeah yeah you know and and i go to work and i come in here i take my shower and i play with the kids and then God knows I try to go to bed in time to get up at, at, at 3.30 in the morning, but, you know, I got kids sleeping with me, and, and, and she has the monsters with her, and and this monster kicks around. Yeah. Yep, you sleep yeah. with your daddy. Well, if you had three wishes, what would they be? Um, Three wishes for us, or three wishes in general? Three wishes any way you want to slice them. Three wishes for me would be to to to, to pretty much um stability yeah stabi stability for the children, but to to also end end homelessness for for like my father. He came home from Vietnam, and my my mom and him were on the street because everybody spit on him when he got back from the war. So he's out on the streets. Oh, uh, my father passed. He passed seven years ago. But when he first came back from from Vietnam, he did three tours, and they they lost their home while he wow. was gone. And um, pretty much to to. Pretty much to have all the money that you can to, uh, when you see people on the side of the road, to give them money and, 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 and because of... More understanding. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't realize how fast... This happens. Oh, happens yeah. Blink of an eye. And how fast it could quickly be you. Anyway. Right. So, Mama, three wishes? Um, other than the stability for my kids... Um, That's my, that's my biggest one, is the stability for my kids. Um, permanent, what we had. Yeah, what we had, what we, what we worked for. Um, other than that, a peaceful bath would be about the only thing I could say. Oh, wow, That's yeah. definitely something you miss. You, so, you don't have that, I mean, you can run to the bathroom, but that doesn't last very long. Right. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. One more. Because they find you. Yeah. <laughs> um... Other than that, like I said, basically understanding. Because the kids are the ones, especially the older ones, like the one that's hiding behind me. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's hard on them, and they take a lot of flack for it. I will go. Yeah, you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Always got to put his two cents in. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much for talking to me. You're welcome. No, no problem. I think I did more crying than talking, but... No, you guys are awesome. <laughs> oh, no, no, Daddy, don't drink that. <laughs> and you are listening to Michael and Danielle, and that's Mark Horavath, and, of course, it's Invisible People. And Invisible People is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. No better way to do it than the way Mark's doing it. Was just, it's just give homeless people a voice. And no questions and no judgment, just a voice. And for more on Invisible People, go to YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. And my goodness, 
That wish from the mom, Danielle. Stability, a peaceful bath, a peaceful bath, and understanding. Three pretty simple wishes any mom should be able to have. Great storytelling. Thanks to Mark Horvath for his passion, bringing these voices to the American consciousness. And thanks to Michael and Danielle, their story. So many homeless people's story. And again, what Michael said was so true. It could happen to anybody, and it happens real fast. And so many Americans are a few paychecks away from not being able to make that mortgage payment. Michael and Danielle's story, Mike Horvath's story, here on Our American Story. American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for the backstory, where Alex Cortez dives into names and brands we know, but whose backstories we don't. Take it away, Alex. Peter Cancro grew up on the Jersey Shore. Down the Jersey Shore in the summer, it became very, very busy, inundated with so many people from North Jersey and New York, so the jobs were very plentiful. Everybody was out working at a young age. It wasn't just me, it was everyone. Just trying to contribute to the family, help out, and none of our friends had any money, their parents, you know, no one. You didn't realize it or know it because it didn't matter. You went out, made some money, and that's how you, you know, bought things and just sort of went after it. So I started out, believe it or not, mowing lawns. So at the age of 10, I had three lawn mowing jobs, one that paid $3, one that paid you know, $3.50, and one that paid $5. So in that year, that was big, big money, cash money. So imagine, though, um, a kid at 10 years old you know, operating a lawnmower with no protection thing, you know, putting the bag on and off. You know, it's funny, you look at it today, you would never let your kid at 10 operate a lawnmower. But we did, you know, it was fine. You had to work, make the money. Used to crawl underneath the boardwalk and pick up the loose change that people dropped through the cracks. Made money that way. And then the first job was at Mike Subs in uh, 71. So I was a 14-year-old. My brother worked there the year before and told the boss, so look at my my brother. I know he's uh, he'll work hard, but I'm not sure how bright he is. And so that's how I got the job. He's very smart, you know, one of those math major guys, and me, I always had to read the chapter twice, I think. Started out at $1.75 an hour, and I was going to, you know, possibly work at Hoffman's Ice Cream, another mentor of mine, Bob Hoffman. Uh, he was going to pay $1.50, but I uh, went to Mike's for $1.75, and that was, uh, that was pretty good money back then. I think minimum wage maybe was like 80 cents back then. So friends of mine were making 80 cents an hour. I was making $1.75. So I walked into Mike Subs, age 14, first job, and my voice mattered. And that was the culture that was in Mike's. It was, you joined a team and they kind of brought you on board. It wasn't like you were the rookie or they made you pay a dues or a price, no. 
They brought you in and you were part of that whole team and they cared about your development and how you worked and they spent the time with each new person coming in. So crazy sales we did like $100,000 a week in today's dollars, you know, averaging like 850, 900 bread a day. It was incredible volume. The number one sub shop, if you will, in the country, in the world, because there wasn't really any of that back then. In 56, Mike's opened by someone named Mike. There was no McDonald's or Burger King in town then. There was no fast food restaurant. So it was really a unique product, the submarine sandwich, the meal within itself, if you will. And then the owner, Victor Merlo at the time, put it up for sale, and that was in 75. I was 17 in high school, so at first, you know, never in my mind in a million years did I think about buying the store. I thought for the first time I'll be able to go to Florida, you know, on spring break, because I was always working every other spring break, I couldn't go. So this, I said, all right, I'm gonna be able to go this time. But uh, as a business is for sale, no one really knows about it. All of a sudden I went home one night and my mother uh, said I heard Mike's is for sale. And at first I was a little upset, like, well, how'd you know? Well, I found out. You know how moms are, they find out everything. Uh, so she looked me in the eye as I was going up the stairs and she said, well, why don't you buy it? And I sort of laughed at her, turned, went up the stairs and it took one flight of stairs before a trigger went off in my head. It was a Sunday night and I got up the next morning, didn't go to school for that week. You know, I called the owner that morning, I said, you know, Victor, I'm gonna you know, try, where are we? I'm gonna try and raise the money. I've got two people demanding a contract. I can probably hold them off a little bit. So I went out, literally knocking on doors, telling people, you know, I worked there for four years, I know the business, this is what, you know, I'm looking to do. And I lived next door to a couple of wealthy towns, if you will, and went to see those folks and just called them up and knocked on the door and went to see them. And they were receptive, but as you know, trying to raise capital and money, it's always difficult. I had a gentleman, Mr. Ely, who was ready to give me all the money by Friday. And, you know, he was a great family friend, great uh, mentor as well. But all of a sudden he said, I want to be 50-50 partner. And I looked at him and I said, you know, no, I, I don't think so. And, you know, I said no. And I was down to zero, had no, wasn't nobody to turn to. And then called up coach Rod Smith, who was my youth football coach, who was also a banker. He was a youth football coach my last year of Pop Warner football. I was 13, I was a quarterback. And you know, we won the championship that year. And um, he was like one of the unbelievable mentors and coaches in my life. Never raised his voice, but you never wanted to disappoint him. He was that kind of a coach. And you just sort of rose up and did your best with him, for him. And so many of his players, you know, say the same thing. He said, yeah, well, Peter, come on over. At first, he says, I thought maybe Peter was in trouble. You know, what's going on? It was a Sunday night after 9 o'clock. And uh, talked to him in the, in the living room. And he said, you know, I think we can do something. And, and he did. It was 125000 1975. I don't know, maybe 600000 700000 today's dollars. So for a 17-year-old to borrow that, no money down, all financed. What if the business doesn't do well? What happens? They say, you know, why did you lend so much money to such a young kid? And he says, well, I knew Peter could get the ball across the goal line. And he was right. Peter later renamed this sub shop Jersey Mike's. 
And what a voice and what a story we're hearing. I mean, imagine going up to your Pop Warner coach, asking him for a $700,000 loan because you want to buy a business. And again, you're 17. And the coach says yes. And why? Because he says, I know, Peter, he's going to get the ball across the goal line. That goes right to his character, which is forged early, folks. We know these things about people real early. And it's hard to change, folks. More on the remarkable story of Jersey Mike Subs, the backstory of the founder, Peter Kenkrow. And by the way, my own personal obsession with Jersey Mike's. Everyone here on the staff knows I'll drive an hour out of my way because it's not just the best sandwich in America. But boy, it brings me back to my youth at the Jersey Shore. More of Peter Kenkrow's story, the backstory, here on Our American Story. Continue with our American stories and the backstory, the story of Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kencrow. And by the way, credit to his mom, because how many parents say to a 17-year-old, you should buy the store? Putting that challenge to her young son, 17's not a grown person by any measure, really made a difference in his entire life. So at this point, he's 17 years old. He's balancing high school and the sub shop he just bought. I would go to homeroom, uh, history, and skip gym, English, and a few other courses. And it's funny, I, I wasn't going to be able to graduate in June because I missed like three months of gym. So I had to come up with a, a medical excuse. You know, it was my, my back. I had, um, you know, problems with my back. So the doctor wrote up that. I have a, like a, what is it called, a Shoreman's deteriorating disc or something like that. So that's what I, I held up. And it was true, technically. So I had to come up with something, you know. <laughs> I was president of my class. People said, oh, you're going to ruin your life. I was supposed to go study law at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, but bought a sub shop instead. You know, if you look at Europe, right, so if you're in the restaurant or hotel hospitality business, that's an honored profession, the same as an attorney or doctor or anything else. And here in the States, it's become more similar. Years ago, it was like people from New York, Wall Street would come down, come into the store and say, are you making subs for a living? I go, yeah, I guess I am. You look at a lot of concepts out there, like Five Guys, how much more expensive are they than a cheeseburger at McDonald's? Like, wow, you know, totally different product. And that's kind of where we're at. We're, we're doing things different than anyone out there. No one is doing what we are doing in the sub sandwich business. No one is fresh slicing every sub to order and fresh grilling the cheesesteaks to order. Now they may, you know, fresh slice the coal, but they're not fresh grilling the cheesesteaks. They're not cooking their own IVP top rounds in the oven for roast beef. It's the best quality, you know, of the product available. Fresh sliced onions, fresh sliced lettuce, and sorted tomatoes, red wine vinegar, olive oil blend. No one's doing that. It's a red vinegar, not the red wine-based vinegar. You know, all the little nuances with the business. And that's where our tagline now is a sub above, you know. So it's really resonated and worked for us. People get it. They come in, and the quality and the quantity of the product 
you know, we're putting on twice the amount of any leading chain and three times the amount of other leading chains. So it's two to one minimum. If we were going to have the state sandwich, it would be a submarine sandwich. You know, you have Kentucky Fried Chicken, you have Tex-Mex, you have, you know, different states are known for different products. So Jersey, it's a submarine sandwich. I mean, convenience stores sell them, pizza shops sell them, delis are selling Everybody on every corner sells submarine sandwiches here in Jersey. So to stand out in this market, you've got to be the best quality, the best quantity in the business. And that, that's kind of where we feel we are. So we don't necessarily compare any, ourselves to any competitor. We just say, hey, we're doing things different here. Whenever you're dealing with the public, you always have good stories. Lots of, lots of crazy stories. You have fun with the people coming in, and they have fun with you in return. So you're three feet away from the customer, whether they've had a bad day or not. You try and turn their day around, make an impact, share your life with the customer. They shake their heads, you know, Peter, I can't believe the people you've got in here, the service. Oh yeah, your subs are good. That was always secondary, it was always the service. And it was more than just, hi, how are you today? Thanks very much, come again. No, it was real, it was genuine. And that's the biggest thing we preach today, is be yourself behind the line really captured a lot of attention and all the people traveling to the shore and then going back out to where they lived around the country. Word spread and everyone would say they don't have anything like this where I'm from, California, Ohio, Chicago. And it's funny how we used to get people to come in and take the subs, wrap the travel and take them back, you know, all over the world. The guy come in every third Thursday and take them back to London. You know, somebody would take them to South America, had a doctor's group that took them to the Soviet Union at the time, Russia, you know. So we always kind of would have a, a laugh about it. It wasn't until, gosh, like 86 that finally we said, you know, we should you know, try and start franchising. And that was a process, going to different companies and attorneys and figuring it out. And there wasn't any roadmap there. I had to figure it all out. It wasn't, I didn't have any mentors in business to kind of show me uh, today, like it's funny today, people say, I want a franchise. Well, let me talk to you. You know, I could shed some light on this whole industry. So we finally started franchise in 86, 87, and it took off. People came in, we didn't advertise to sell, and it really grew very well in Ocean of Monmouth County. And then we went out to Ohio, we went out to Tennessee and opened the store, and we got the best sub award and for by Reader's Choice Awards pretty much in, in Ohio and Tennessee. and. And that's happened almost in virtually every market that we went to. We had one store in, in California, one store in Seattle. We'd win the best sub award, best sandwich award in the market. So it kind of told us something like, wow, this can work across valleys, mountains, you know, and, and one store. And we never had a goal of opening a second store or plan. It just sort of evolved and happened. People would come in, try the product. Oh, my goodness, this is great. I want to open up one. So that's how it evolved, you know, and just really grew through word of mouth. But I tell you, when we opened one store in a, a totally different market, we went and we opened up that store with the owner. We stayed, you know, for weeks, for, you know, a month if we had to, a month and a half, and with several people. So the, the amount of money that we spent and committed to the owners was incredible. Every dime we made, we put back into the business. And if we had leftover money, we were pushing the marketing for that store opening. And we evolved to the point where we were 
opening and spending all the money and some. So we had a, boy, if everything was fine as long as we kept opening. And then 91 happened and uh, that recession. There was many recessions from 75 till now, but that one was the one that hit our company the worst. So banks in the Northeast, all of them got hit. There was even a local bank that actually went out of business here. So banks were giving money nonstop to everybody that wanted to open a business, and all of a sudden, no money. Nobody could borrow any money. So we sort of flatlined for a while. I was negative, like a million and a half, a couple of million dollars. I said, oh boy. And to the point where I had to lay off the six people that I had working for him. All of the people working for him, including his brother, at his quote-unquote office. A little uh, 400 square foot office over a local store. We called it International Headquarters and uh, everybody that was kind of working it and everything I had to lay off. And it just really, you talk about just devastating your life, your soul, everything. Um, you know, I thought we were, you know, done out of business, but, uh, but I tell you, that was a, a dark time because, you know, first time in my life that I went down and got stripped, you know, everything. You know, my whole life successful in sports and athletics and then to have my own business and wow, this is great and, and really moving and growing and that was the first hit that I took that, uh, I guess, you know, more than got knocked out of bounds, but sort of knocked out. <laughs> so sold everything, and it's funny, the 401k plan that people have, I liquidated that, you know, how to take the penalties, and later on I liquidated it again. So it's funny, I don't have a 401k plan. <laughs> Still today, because, you know, I say it's, it's uh, bad luck, you know, I'll have to liquidate it, you know? So it's funny. But... Uh, Amazing how many bills you can pay when you didn't have any payroll. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, you had to really just get in every day and show up early and just work it out and try and figure it out. I had a little legal pad and, you know, write down my notes and thoughts through my pen, if you will. You know, I never made it to the computer age. It was quite a process. It took probably, gosh, you know, a couple of years where we just had to, you know, hire back a couple of guys and slowly grew. It really took a while, 92, 93. And then finally, like, oh gosh, it wasn't until like towards 93, 94, all of a sudden, you know, okay, now North Carolina, a guy came in and opened up. And then somebody saw the store, oh, I want to open up. And I think the economy in, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina then was really started back sooner than most other economies with the research triangle and the college universities. And so, North Carolina really made our company and then hired everyone back. And you're listening to The Backstory, Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Cancro. We hear this in so many stories about entrepreneurs, and we should tell them more often. It's not a straight road to success. And getting through not one but two real big crises with his own 401k. I mean, imagine twice having to take the penalties and cash in your own retirement savings and lay off your own brother and start over almost. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, the backstory of Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kenker.
And we're back with Our American Stories and Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kenkrow's story. Now we return to Peter on how he selects employees and franchisees for his team. You meet, you know, 15 different people, you know, in a group, and you can tell out of that group who's got that spring in their step that's got some enthusiasm, that has the quote-unquote energy. You know, they are genuine, they're real, there's something about it that clicks. But I always ask, hey, where'd you go to high school? You know, what sports did you play? Were you involved in activities? Were you involved in, you know, I was the alternate on the chess team, you know, and what did you do with your life up to now? And and how did you treat people? You know, did you kind of bring people along with you? Did you raise up together? So we're sort of looking for that similar culture that we care about. It's hard to, you know, I wish I could, you know, write it down, this is what you do, but there are certain attributes. Are they buttoned up, are their shirt tucked in, did they get out of the car, walk to the building with a good pace? You know, it's funny, I, I told the office at the office lunch, and I'm always looking at people when they're walking, you know, in and out of the parking lot, what's their pace? You know, that they have a sense of urgency. So it's funny, you know, that sort of describes people to me, you know, on a short, brief version, you know, how do you see if somebody is going to work, you know, well as an owner long-term or an employee or a partner long-term. It's those first things that you see, that you feel, that you sense. So someday I'll write it out, you know. Alvaro Garcia, who escaped a war-torn country, is one of those franchisees that Peter had a great gut feel about. Yeah, Alvaro came from Nicaragua bombs going off and exploding. He was missing for a day or so. They thought he was killed. And then later, years later, he comes to this country, immigrates, and uh, was working with Domino's Pizza. And, you know, an amazing worker and just nonstop and gets involved with us. And we had a connection. You know, I meet Alvaro. I go, what are you doing? You know, and I hear about his background. And he looked at me and goes, what are you doing? You know, so I love, you know, people kind of that, that connection. And today, you know, he has, uh, I don't know, like 55 stores. He's the largest uh, franchisee, cares about his people, committed to the communities. He really gets it. And he and his wife, Blanca, and his whole family are a part of our family. And Peter's idea of family that should be loved and freely given to is a pretty expansive one. It's, it's funny today, a um, couple of times in interviews, people say, well, you know, this giving, you know, and everybody says, well, cause-related marketing is what you should be doing. The marketing experts will tell us. And I say, okay, well, I guess I'll keep doing that then. But ours started in high school, Bob Hoffman, of Hoffman's Ice Cream, and Jack Baker of the Lobster Shanty gave unconditionally to the youth, to the community, to the first aid, and when you're a recipient of that in high school, local businesses kind of taking care of you and interested in you, you see them doing that and you say, wow. So when I took over 17 senior in high school, I said, well, this is what we're going to do. And we gave, you know, unconditionally to the community. And that's kind of how we, we really are, the, the company is based on today. Our mission statement is giving making a difference in someone's life. We call it the power of the sub-sandwich, we like to joke. But it's true, I mean, it's a, a connection with the people coming in. 
It's getting involved in the sports teams. It's getting involved in the hard walk, the MS walk. Um, anything that's going on in the community, we embrace and we donate food. Hey, you know, there's a Holiday Express tour. They bring hope to, I don't know how many concerts they do around from Thanksgiving to Christmas in this local area here. Tim McClune heads it up and we donate, you know, thousands and thousands of sub sandwiches to all of these shelters and to hospitals. And they come and play, and Jersey Mike Subs is there. And I always joke with Tim, I say, well, you know, they're coming for the subs. He goes, absolutely, you know, so we joke about that. But that's what it's about, and that's the commitment. That's what owners all around the country, they get it. And, you know, we have that giving day in March where we raised uh, like $7.5 million last year. Who knows what this March will bring, hopefully over eight but it goes after local charities. Owners give away all their proceeds for the day, everything. I mean, I don't know why, but they do. And it's funny because uh, I thought maybe 50% they would have given, but no, it's really gotten a life of its own where people want to do it. And it's not mandatory and everyone buys in, everyone wants to do it. And I, I think it's unique, you know, out there in the industry. The old days of businesses being involved in the community in our lives. I mean, that's how it was growing up, you know, that business was part of the community. And it's pretty simple, pretty basic, but, you know, not many get it. And we do, you know, that, that caption of the, the day of giving, we call it give to give, you know, that's the premise of it. So it's pretty powerful. You know, it's funny, a lot of people say, oh, you know, give back and, oh, if you give, it's going to come back to you. I go, no, 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 you're missing it. We're just giving, we're just committing to, to communities, to people's lives. That's, that's what we care about. We don't, you know, if something comes back, great, but that's not why we're doing it. It's that whole give to give uh, deal. Now, obviously you have to have a good business model and make profits to be able to give, but it's kind of, it has to, what comes first? You know, so right away we start by opening up and donating money to a local charity and raising awareness for the local charity. And they do this every single time they open a new store, which goes like this. So we open up on a Wednesday and we go out door to door a few days before and um, kind of get involved with the local, local uh, charity. It could be Booster Club, it could be First Aid, it could be Children's Hospital. It varies, again, wherever the owner wants to go after. And we'll go out and say, hey, you know, come on in, free sub with your $2 donation because it's going to a local charity. People have never been in, never tried our sub possibly in a new area that we open. So we say, hey, you know, come on in and give us a try and just for two bucks and you're going to help the, oh, okay, that sounds great. And uh, we open and it's a catch-22 because it's just packed. But we got the people and the staff and we're kind of cranking it out as we say. We raise the money and gosh, it's uh, sometimes, you know, 10,000, 20,000 from the opening or, you know, sometimes 5,000, but it's uh, every store does it. And it's a way to kind of, we're here, you know, hello, we're, you know, making an impact and uh, the crew loves it. They're like, wow, we've never been involved in something like this. Nobody kind of does this, you know? So that's the most important thing. It's not patting ourselves on the back or saying, hey, we do this, we... No, it's about raising awareness for that local charity. 
because you know how it is today, the cutbacks all across the country with government subsidies, or maybe it's just really the way it's always been. Businesses need to do their part. Small, big, medium companies have got to commit more than ever to the community. And I, and I tell you, if you do that, we found that people really get it. They hear about it. Now we don't advertise, you know, half of what we do. But people come in and go, you know, Peter, I, I hear what you're doing. And, you know, that's why we're here. And you're listening to Peter Kenkro, and we're doing the backstory. He's Jersey Mike's founder. And my goodness, insights almost everywhere in this past segment. What's their pace? That's almost how he's sizing people up, is they're walking out and around and through the parking lot. Are they just sort of lollygagging? Are they going real slow? Are they seem bored? Or are they energized? Do they have a sense of urgency? And it seems he's had his own sort of instinctive reaction to how to hire and how to think about hiring people. And that story about an immigrant from a bombed out Nicaragua being his number one owner of stores, 55, tells you not only what a, what a franchise and what an operation Jersey Mike's is, but what a country we have that something like this is possible. When we come back, we'll learn more about this remarkable entrepreneur and giver. Give to give, by the way, is exactly right. Don't give to get back. Give to give. More with Jersey Mike Subs founder Peter Cancro. The backstory here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories in the final portion of Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Kenkro's story. And we return to Peter on one of the many charities they've gotten behind. So there's one um, just recently in LA, Inland Empire, Cancer for College. And a gentleman had cancer and, uh, you know, got stripped of his funds and you couldn't, didn't have the money for college. He finally did, but he said, I want to do this. And, uh, incredible uh, you know idea and charity but small you know not this big net nobody really ever heard of it but cancer for college and we went in all the stores got together and we raised a million dollars the first year so he was like wow are you kidding me you know so he had the expectation we kind of talked to him about it we'd like to get involved we met him we saw his enthusiasm his passion for others and everybody wanted to get on board with his cause and there's it's just so many other examples where hey we don't raise a million we raise ten thousand for a couple of stores getting in but it's the idea and, and the and the purpose that we go after and that's the most important thing as a company that we like to talk about it's not about you know billions of sales and profits we like to talk about how much we like to you know, give and be involved in, in making a difference in people's lives. And what's most remarkable is that Peter and Jersey Mike's have been doing that far before their billions in sales. And we're just one store trying to survive. Uncle Tom, we called him, and um, he was, uh, had diabetes, had uh, his legs amputated, and, and then he lost his sight. But we used to pick him up from his house and bring him in the store Pretty much set him at the table all day and, uh, you know, 
He'd have the sub, we'd have, uh, he loved the John Wayne movies, we'd have that on the TV, and we would just talk, and then when he lost his vision, we would just talk out loud, the customers were in line, hey Tom, you know, this is guy so-and-so, and you know, he would just uh, converse with the people, you know, all day long. So it was a special time for all of us, for the crew, to see kind of what we did with him. <laughs> you know, so it's not so much what we did for him, wow, what he did for us, you know? I mean, to see his spirit, to see his attitude, I mean, just incredible. What happens with giving and getting involved with people's lives? So much you do and give, but boy, wow, what you receive is just incredible. Really touches your heart. But a lot of us have trouble stepping outside of the busyness of our lives to love like this. Of course, trying to survive, I get it. But um, sooner or later, if they do get involved and get, get, in, get into this, it's, uh, it's so rewarding. It's just unbelievable. But I, I tell you, I think it's, you know, I'm a big proponent of, you know, turn off the news, right? And if you look at it, it's, it's a huge movement out there in the world of good. You know, things are happening. Things are really rising up. People are kind of uniting and together. It's not left liberal. It's not right conservative. No, I'm talking about the, the, the rising movement of people helping people. Unlike what the news says, you know, we see it totally different. We see, you know, we're optimistic about the future, about what great things are happening. The rise of good is overcoming the negative. And I firmly believe that. I mean, and I, I think it's, it's actually factually true. You know, if you look, I read something recently where it was sent to me like, wow, if you look at people in poverty, people, uh, you know, all those criteria, it, the world has never been better. It's amazing, Un uneducated, poverty, you know, on and on and on. It's better now than it ever has been in the history of the world. Sure, there's always negative, absolutely, but if you focus on the great stories, the good, I mean, wow, it's inspiring to help people. Let's go, let's do more, let's commit. So turn off the news to the audience, right? Not the radio station, but the TV news. Keep the radio on, <laughs> you know, because you, you're hearing good, positive stuff. Now the brand is really starting to resonate. It's really starting to get out there. And we're, we're kind of the overnight success, if you will, um, that we've been working at it, you know, for a long, long time, but that's okay. You know, and, and people say, who are you? What are you guys doing? We just, uh, Entrepreneur Magazine just came out, top 500 franchises in the country. So number one was Dunkin', number two, I think was Taco Bell, number three, McDonald's. Planet Fitness was in there in the top 10. I think Great Clips was, or the year before. So all franchising, right? Jersey Mike Subs, we were ranked eighth. Eighth, people saying, who are these guys? Almost like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Who are these guys? 1969, best movie, right? <laughs> a lot of times people will say, well, you know, how did you get to where you are now with your company? And I go, well, you know, I showed up every day for almost 45 years. And it's really kind of ironic that, you know, several years ago, not until, you know, maybe 2012, 2013, 2014, I looked around and I go, wow, I think we're doing pretty well. We're so focused on all the details, on all the fundamentals, on all the training, 
about opening a store, about driving real estate, you know, around the country and finding the best site next to Starbucks, next to Chipotle, next to Five Guys and getting in and then opening to win, not signing a lease until we knew the exact cost of the restaurant and then doing the right training and then the right marketing. We're so focused on so many things and just constantly just all over that that we picked up our heads one day and said, oh my goodness, we're winning all of these awards. And when you win the award, you say, okay, well, thanks so much. And then you go, okay, guys, congratulations, but let's go back to work. You know, we're kind of really driving ourselves every day to improve. How do we do better? How do we help our owners, you know, rise up? That's our job. I mean, that's what we got to do. Like a football season, you finish the season, okay, great. Now let's get ready for next season. Or each week, you know, okay, how did it go? Great. Now we got to get ready for next week, for next month. That's sort of how we operate. It's funny over weekends and things, people say, oh, you know, you know people will sit Saturday, Sunday and just watch, watch the games like all weekend. I go, what are you doing? How are you going to break out of what you're, where you are, what you're at? And if you, if you, you got to get up and get into the game of life, get into life. For anybody in starting out their career or in their career right now, it's the what is your passion? So, you know, yeah, I mean, um, well, I've worked now to be, what, 45 years this March that I've owned the company and, you know, get up every day and I am running, you know. I've, some people say, you know, I should slow down and they say that to me and I run away from them. <laughs> so, you know, you try and understand some kind of balance. You know, I still have to work at that, you know, I, I, I admit I don't have that much, but I love what I'm doing. I love the purpose that we have. Um, and, you know, people have to, you know, they've been told this many times, everyone is saying this, find what you're passionate about and then it's not work. You know, it's, you should be going to your job every day if you're a teacher and love raising kids up and being an example to them. If you're an attorney, you know, there's one path, the right way, you know, and fight hard for your client. And, you know, everyone, whatever they're doing, should be doing 100% you know, being passionate and getting up every day and loving it. And if you don't, you know, you need to find something before, you know, to, to divert to, to go to. But don't leave what you have until you find that thing. <laughs> you know, that's why I always tell kids, no, no, if you've got something, stay with it and then find something to go to, then you go. Yeah, I listened to Peter and, you know, I, I quit, you know, the job. No, 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 well, find something first. You know, I never really like to tell my story. I never like to talk about it, but you really need to so people hear it, you know, and maybe it impacts, you know what? I'm going to do that too. And we really did need to hear that story. We all need to hear each other's stories, especially overcoming obstacles and doing what many people would think is the impossible. And great work on that by Alex. It's the backstory, Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Cancrow. And my goodness, he said it so plainly. I showed up every day for 45 years. I was focused on the fundamentals with my team, my details. I wanted to lift and raise up my owners. And I wanted to train and invest in my people. And I wanted to give for giving's sake. This is not actually that complicated. It's just hard to do. Find your passion, stick to it, and don't quit. And we're not hearing these kind of life-affirming messages. And we violently agree with Peter Turn off the news. There is so much good out in the world. And that's our goal here on Our American Stories, is to bring this good 
out to the world. This country's working. It's got its problems. Our families have problems, but we overcome them. And it's never been a better time to live than now. I always ask people, what century, what time would you rather live than now? And where? And my goodness, the world votes with their feet moving to this great country. We had a, one of his top people move from, really, if you knew what Nicaragua was like at the time that he was living there, to compare what he had there to what he has now, the freedoms, the opportunities, get going, get moving. And we love Peter's voice, but my goodness, we also love the sandwiches. And my goodness, the fresh cut meat, the vinegar, the vinegar. That's all I can tell people, the vinegar. And of course, the fresh cut onions, the fresh cut lettuce. I could go on and on. It is the best sub, but it didn't come from nowhere. It costs more to do that. They put on all that meat. They cook and cure their own stuff. Uh, it's that attention and love of detail. And it's there when you go into the shop, like you do when you go to Southwest Airlines. There's not a recording telling you about how to buckle your belt. There's a human being, and they're trying to entertain you and make something semi-miserable into something, well, pleasant. Not easy to do in these days. The backstory, Jersey Mike's founder, Peter Cancro. If there's a Jersey Mike's near your neighborhood, get to one, try it. You'll become an addict like me. And if you're looking to start a business, my goodness, get a franchise. I'm thinking of getting one myself. If, it doesn't, if one doesn't come here to Oxford, Mississippi soon, I'm going to find out how I can buy one. Peter Cancro's story, Jersey Mike's sub story, here on Our American Stories.